I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One here on the Overtime Media Network. This is a this is a bit of a, a Christmas drop and, and it's an interesting episode because we ended and you know what you and I were just talking about this a couple of minutes ago, Mark, but the season ended late. And for whatever reason, we go into what is normally a bit of a decompression period over the winter break where there's kind of a a little bit of a relaxation where a lot of that F1 news and, and gossip dies down a little bit. But for whatever reason, here we are at Christmas and the news is still coming full force. There's tons of stuff going on. And I think I know where we're probably going to start. Uh, but before we do, uh, maybe I'll pass it over to you and check in to see how things are going before we get to this <laughs> meaty topic. And for those of you that are watching on YouTube, there, hint, there you hint, go. we'll be yeah. starting there shortly. Yeah, you've got your notes all ready to go. Well, you know, it, it's going, you know, it, it is the holiday season. Uh, some of us uh, have finally managed to start their, their, their vacations a little bit later than planned. But uh, it's all good. It's all good. Uh, you know, it's I, I'm feeling festive, even though I'm I'm locked away <laughs> here. I'm not going to be able to get out and and obviously visit people this holiday season. So what what we're, yeah. we're zooming right now to record this for, for for the YouTube show. But you know, it is what it is. It's 2020. But at least there's there's a silver lining to this cloud. And I'm not talking about the first story we're going to talk uh, talk about. But the fact is, is what what you just uh, said that even though we're just a, a couple of weeks beyond the end of the season, it's it's abnormal busy and, and that's a good thing because there, there's plenty of show fodder and actually a lot of it's a really good uh, stuff to talk about uh, and I, I guess that is uh, the uh, the segue to get right into what we were going to talk about and I always had this thing you know growing up when I was in school is always doing the homework I liked least do that one first you know if I did want to do math or physics or English or French or whatever I'd always tackle that one first and go on to the the, the ones I like more later on and they just got easier as, as it went on so the first one one and we, we were talking about it because we were texting back and forth last night when this uh, it was kind of interesting and we're, we're talking about uh, the the whole Nikita Mazepin uh, saga he's been uh, reaffirmed uh, by Haas they dropped a, a press release uh, earlier today but it's interesting because you texted me last night saying that it's interesting he deleted his uh, apology from his Insta feed he also deleted it um, any reference to being a Haas driver out of his bio and I think I texted you back the fingered cross uh, <laughs> <laughs> emoji. But boy, I, I, w- I was thinking about it when, when I was checking through sh- uh, social media and the F1 News this morning when I was having my breakfast. And my immediate reaction was, this is not an opportunity missed. This is just the wrong solution, the, the, the wrong way to tie this one up. Because unfortunately, I mean, it, it was all over this. The, the, the whole focus came on this uh, video that he, he put on his Instagram feed a couple of weeks ago when he inappropriately touched uh, a woman's 
you know, on uh, on and posted it very briefly, and then it got deleted. I mean, if it was a one-off thing, then okay, maybe there is some wiggle room, if you want to call it that, for re- rehabilitation and discipline and stuff like that. But unfortunately, this guy has a track record a mile long for questionable and poor and bad decisions and behavior. And like I say, I, this is not a missed opportunity. This is just the wrong way to go about it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I, I think as well, the probably the last week or so, I, I've been really intensely focused on uh, Twitter and, and Reddit looking for any nugget or morsel of information that would kind of suggest that Haas was possibly going to do the right thing. But the Haas camp was was very tight-lipped, but for whatever reason, uh, momentum grew on social media over the past couple of days that yep. suggested that they probably were going to do the right thing. And, and I got excited by that. And now nobody was reporting this. It was simply kind of momentum um, and energy on social media. But uh, I began to buy into it. And you know what? I, I started sharing that with you last night that, hey, I think this is I think this is going to happen. I think they're going to do the, the right thing. And, and again, for Haas, it's, it's the right thing, but it's also short-term financially the most painful thing because you know what you sever ties with uh with Mazapan, which is absolutely the right thing to do. You also sever ties with who is now your principal financial backer. Um and I think this is really where this whole situation gets a little bit ugly. And you gotta wonder if if Mazapan wasn't bringing his father's fortunes to this team and he was just a paid driver, would they have retained him? And and I think resoundingly, I, I think most people would argue that they wouldn't have, that they would have severed those ties. And the, the other thing I was thinking about last night as well is as as disgusting as this entire situation is, it's also massively overshadowed something that Haas should be celebrating for which is bringing aboard Mick Schumacher like everything we should be talking about yep. with respect to Haas right now should be favorable and positive like how is his first season going to be how is he going to compare to his father and his father's first season like what's his ceiling in terms of development what's his racecraft going to look like in a Formula One car how is he going to adjust to a Formula One car we're not talking about that at all we're not even mentioning his name because the Mazapan situation is is just so awful and you know what I, I'm going to read the the Haas F1 statement because to me it was kind of like a, a slap in the face like like the sense I got from this comment was like, how dare, how dare you challenge us? But it reads this, Haas F1 would like to reaffirm that Nikita Mazepin and Mick Schumacher, no one was asking about Mick Schumacher, by the way, <laughs> but would like to reaffirm that Mazepin and Mick Schumacher will form its driver lineup for the 2021 Formula One championship season. As per the team's previous statement um, regarding the actions of Mazepin, bracket December 9th, this matter has been dealt with internally and no further comment shall be made. So I I think what we can extract from this is ultimately they have no means by which to punish him. Ultimately, his his father's backing the team financially. Uh, He's going to keep his ride. He's not going to be penalized financially. His contract's not been compromised. He's not going to be out of a seat when it comes to the season. It's just the whole whole situation is just wrong. And and I, I love your point. Like, it's just wrong. They got this completely wrong. In the spirit of we races one and social equality, they completely messed this up. Well, yeah, I mean, it was the, the first real opportunity to, to to do something about it. And I thought it was uh, very interesting. Uh, a lot of the reaction that, uh, that that you saw on social media from uh, you know, a broad spectrum of, uh, of Formula One fans was the fact that uh, that it was uh, well, you know, it's basically um, the, the FIA and Formula One had divested themselves of this whole situation and basically said, okay, you know, Haas, it's up to you guys to deal with it. 
And basically, I think they found themselves painted in the corner because I was thinking maybe it was a similar type situation that uh, McLaren found themselves in with Honda. Obviously, completely different. But when they had that first opportunity to to break that contract with Honda, it cost them a hundred million bucks. So I was thinking, yeah. obviously, it's a completely different situation. That was a business decision, and this was a decision that there a situation they're dealing with uh, for some egregious behavior on a guy that hasn't even stepped and sat in one of their cars yet. So I was thinking, perhaps, the, you know, just with like for for some things that you mentioned, like the fact that uh, his father is back in the team financially, perhaps it was uh, some big financial penalty to break that uh, contract. It may, maybe just because some unforeseen thing, but I mean, there are a lot of unhappy people out there, and I received uh, an email from uh, you know, unfortunately. It was somebody who's now a former listener nothing to do what we did i mean say he was full of praise for the work that we do on on the podcast and on the youtube uh, channel but it's just a the, i'll just sort of sum it up in a nutshell without you know divulging names or anything like that but this fellow formula one fan since the 1960s and has kind of seen obviously a lot of changes in the sport uh, from this uh, during this time but he really felt uh, really disgruntled and, and felt like this whole Mazepin situation was uh, really the straw that kind of uh, broke the, the the camel's back. And basically, well, how can I sit down with my family, with my, my, my grandkids or whatever, when you have, uh, you know, behavior like this going on and it's dealt with, you know, it, it publicly just kind of looks like... I don't want to say it looks at, well, it looks like a slap on the wrist, but the fact that it's all sort of been held uh, or, or dealt with behind uh, closed doors is almost like a non-resolution to 99.99% of the other people in and around Formula One, right? So I, I can completely understand that. And it's uh, you can understand why people are upset. It just, uh, like we were saying, it, it was not a missed opportunity. It was just the wrong up or the, the, the wrong way to solve this thing. But who knows? We don't know everything that was going on behind the, the the scenes, but it's interesting too because the the first two things that I actually wanted to talk about, just because there's such a, a juxtaposition between the two stories, was you have Mazepin on one side, and there was actually a Mick Schumacher story out this week. Perhaps uh, Haas felt that uh, they needed to get some uh, some some positive press out there, and they are actually praising Mick Schumacher for his work ethic and how they found that was like the most impressive thing for him when, you know, bringing him into the team for, for next year. And I'm just like, and, and and to your point, this is the sort of thing that we should be talking about. But the fact that it, it, it isn't is just, um, it's just wrong. It's just completely wrong. You made such a great point as well about the FIA and Formula One effectively deferring to the team. Like, this isn't one of those opportunities where you defer to the team. This is where, as the governing body of global motorsports or, you know, the, the body that regulates Formula One, like this is the exact opportunity for you to step in. Like, hey, Haas, we, we trust you. Make your decision. You made the wrong decision. And now we're going to step in. And the, the only thing, and again, this isn't, I'm not rationalizing the decision. Trust me. The only conclusion I can draw from this is that, Mazapan's father is probably more deeply embedded within this team at a financial level than we probably know. Mm -hmm. And I think at this point, there is no separating the two. Like my sense is that Haas, I, I feel like Gene Haas, this, this Formula One experiment hasn't gone as he'd expected. Um, there is no, there is no horizon for this team, given everything that we've discussed in terms of the Ferrari power unit. They're not going to bounce back this year. They're probably not going to bounce back next year. Um, I think he was probably looking for a very significant cash injection. And ultimately it was the devil that appeared with a check and they signed up. And, and my sense is that there, 
there never was going to be a circumstance where they, no matter, even if it's the right thing, I don't think they were ever going to cut him just because my sense is his family is so deeply embedded within this team that ultimately it would be his father cutting him. And that was never going to happen because this entire, this entire tie up is to give Mazapan that, that opportunity. And that, that listener email is a really interesting one because you know, this is what I would have expected five, six, eight, ten years ago under the Bernie Eccleston regime. Like this dirty kind of playboy culture <laughs> with with the kind of mistreated, disrespected grid girls, um, women who were afraid to report from the paddock, women that were afraid to work in the paddock, like frequent mistreatment of women, like this boys club culture, like they'll be like that. It, it feels dirty. Like I expected more of Liberty and, you know, Liberty came in and, you know what, they made that decision to eliminate grid girls as part of the culture, which was the right thing to do, have grid kids, all that kind of stuff. Um, they introduced We Race as One, although I, I have some pretty significant issues with that. But this was th- this was an inflection point. And like there was there was only one right answer and they got the test wrong. FIA Formula One, they got the test wrong. And I feel like ultimately they were all backed into a corner because they knew that, hey, if we force Mazapan out, his father leaves and the team probably crumbles because we probably don't have a buyer on the market given that it's the COVID pandemic. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's very interesting that you should bring that up because something, a little light bulb just went on in in my head. Just kind of thinking because uh, just a couple of weeks ago, you had, uh, you know, uh, Mazepin Sr.'s uh, lawsuit thrown out uh, at the law courts in yeah. London, all to do with that uh, whole racing point thing and how basically the way that, uh, you know, I'm not exactly sure of the timeline and everything, but basically the way that was uh, that, that it was framed, that uh, that Urukali or whatever Mazepin father's um, company is, was all set to, to basically snap up uh, Force India out of the hands from the, you know, uh, bankrupt Vijay Malia and, and take that one over. But then lo and behold, you know, had Lauren Stroll and his consortium swoop in there and pick that one up. And so there was, um, you know, there, there was that whole process that went through the courts there. So this almost kind of has a feeling now that perhaps this is a, a plan B because, you know, there, there has been that totally that, agree. That, that totally agree that speculation about uh, you know Gene Haas's commitment to, to Formula One in the long run, right? And and I mean, there's there's been that sort of uh, where there's smoke kind of fire things or these signals that you know are they going to be it in for the long term or not? And it kind of makes you wonder now: is this just sort of a foothold for for Mazepin to you know to get into Formula One and maybe take this team over from 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 Gene Haas? But like you say, I mean, uh, perhaps that this whole situation is a good indication of um, how big or how deep the investment and involvement of uh, Mazepin's father is in uh, in Haas Formula One. So who knows? It'll probably come out in in the wash. But considering we've uh, spent the, the first uh, 10 or 12 minutes of the show uh, talking about this one, let's just, uh, before we go into the break here, let, let's transition nicely into that uh, story I was just uh, talking about uh, with, with Mick, uh, Mick Schumacher. Because like we said, this is the sort of story we should be talking about uh, right now. And, uh, Obviously, he is, uh, you know, Formula Two uh, 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 champion. He's coming into Formula One. You know, huge expectations on his uh, shoulders. But I mean, the, you know, without even reading too much into the story, it uh, I really got the feeling that you know Mick is a chip off the old block. He's uh, just uh, you know apple doesn't fall far from the tree thing. Uh, you know, use all the different uh, you know uh, comparisons you want to. But I mean, that was the one thing because I mean, his dad Michael really changed the game uh, when it came to the the way 
that uh, a Formula One driver approached the sport in terms of fitness, preparation, the way that he interacted uh, and, and integrated with the, with the engineers and the mechanics and everybody. I mean, he really set the bar for the modern Formula One driver. I mean, I, I think a lot of us, uh, when you kind of think of what a Formula One driver is, I think there's maybe that flamboyant playboy James Hunt 1970s kind of, uh, you know, you're out drinking and partying and smoking the night before and you show up to the paddock on Sunday morning, you know, still reeking of booze and you know, and, and smoke and God only knows what else. And you jump into your uh, your overalls and into the car with a hangover and you go and race, right? But I, I mean, I mean, I, I'm exaggerating, obviously, but uh, I mean, Michael really did um, change, you know, set the bar on that. So it is really going to be interesting. And I, I really kind of find it kind of eerie too when I see some pictures of, uh, of Mick, when you see him from a certain angle, it's like, my goodness, he's a spitting image of his old man. You know, I, I think you uh, you touched on something that we probably all take for granted now, which is the physical and mental work that a modern F1 driver does to prepare to sit in these cars. And part of it is simply because the modern F1 car is so powerful and creates so much G-force that they physically have to spend time in the simulator, in the gym with their trainers, or they simply won't be able to survive a race. Um, but I think you're absolutely right about Michael Schumacher. And I think your, your story about James Hunt is perfectly apt. Like you, if you look at the stereotype of what a Formula One driver was in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, they were out partying the night before the race. They're in the paddock smoking. They've got a beer in their hand. Uh, you know what? They're, they're chasing the ladies. Like it was a, it was very much a play playboy culture and they may have been talented drivers but they weren't putting in any time at the gym they weren't putting in any time um with a with a therapist like they, they were showing up on race day maybe they were hung out or maybe they weren't but they would pilot that car and they take it around the track i think i think michael schumacher is very much like and, and i think you can probably draw this comparison with other professional sports as well that there came a time where all of a sudden the athletes began to value fitness and diet in a way that those that came before them didn't. And I think Michael Schumacher was very much that, that marker in formula one in the sense that his diet, his mental preparedness, his physical preparedness, his intensity was unlike anything I think we'd ever seen in the sport prior. So it doesn't surprise me that his, his son is tactically taking the same approach. Um, but I think it's also interesting because you talk about the impact of Michael Schumacher on formula one, like his legacy is vast, but there is no driver in the paddock today that isn't devoted to the gym, that doesn't have a full-time trainer, that doesn't have a full-time dietitian. The amount of work that these drivers do off the track relative yeah. to what a driver was doing 30 years ago is absurd. Like these guys may have an off season where they're not racing, but they are doing other forms of motorsports. They're in the simulator, they're in the gym, they're with their trainers. These guys are working 365 days a year. And that started with Michael Schumacher. Yeah. Yeah, he really did uh, change the game. And actually, this is a cool kind of uh, time of year from another point or perspective, because I love going through my Instagram feed at this time of year, because, you know, being a cyclist, I love going through and seeing these guys, you know, like uh, in the mountains on their bikes, training hard and stuff totally. like that. And it, it is pretty cool. But uh, exactly to your point, I mean, it, it is a 365 day a year job, more or less. There really is very, very little uh, downtime, because, I mean, we, we go and look at guys 
guys like uh, Michael Schumacher or Lewis Hamilton or say Jensen Button, these guys that have long careers in Formula One, but for every Jensen, every Lewis, every Michael Schumacher, how many guys that are there that just only last a season or two and then just, you know, yeah. they, they can crack the sport, but they don't don't last uh, long term. Anyway, so time to take a quick break here on the Overtime Media Network. Don't go away. We'll be back in uh, just a, mo- a moment. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And well, we still have more Haas news and it's going to kind of transition into uh, a lot of uh, Ferrari news. And this was an interesting one that uh, popped up uh, earlier this week. And actually, Ferrari is setting up uh, what they call a Haas hub at uh, Marinello with uh, more of their uh, personnel to be actually move across to to the, you know, to the Haas team. And it's uh, very interesting because uh, we we were talking about it uh, not so long ago, just the the, the whole, uh, the, the integration and the synergy that you have between Red Bull and Honda and how we were talking about that uh, with, with Renault there re- really wasn't uh, so much of that it was basically here's a Renault power unit put it in the back of your car and I kind of get the feeling now too that and and, and Mercedes is another one where I think there's a lot more you know working uh, w- 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 with the teams but I kind of get the feeling too that uh, basically when it comes to the Ferrari customer teams it's very much a couple of crates with power units uh, show up outside like uh, the, the team factories and here it is guys have at it to put it in. So I thought that was an interesting uh, development. And I, I just uh, started wondering to myself, is this a more of an indication of some of these changes that we've seen behind the scenes at uh, Ferrari this year that perhaps uh, they're taking a bit of a different uh, direction uh, when it comes to their customer teams. And, uh, you know, I I think that there has to be a benefit, not just for the customer teams, but uh, for Ferrari uh, themselves to get the feedback from their customer teams, you know, just uh, not on, well, obviously you need that to to, to put their power unit in the back of their car, but just more communication between both parties. 
it was it's interesting because I, I wasn't expecting this news, but as I started to dig into it, it started making a lot more sense to me. And, and you know, you and I talked about this, I, I think a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, where we talked about the this the the salary cap, the operating, the financial operating structure of the sport is changing in such a way that some of these bigger teams simply won't be able to carry the personnel, the headcount that they carry today. Uh, fiscally, economically, it just won't work within the cap. And and one of the things that I thought, thought was really interesting when I was reading these articles was Bonato himself acknowledged that it's preferable to pre pro kind of proactively start moving staff from his team to his customer teams now, as opposed to being in a position where, hey, the cap's implemented, they have to start doing cut or a so kind of staff cuts, but ultimately that this is a, a preemptive move by Ferrari to make sure that the personnel that they would have had to cut anyways end up with a team and not necessarily with a rival team. Because ultimately, if you're <laughs> going to lose personnel, it's better to lose those personnel to a customer team and help with that migratory process than it is to potentially see some of your engineers or your design or your um engineers or your designers end up with a kind of a competitor if you know what i mean so i thought it was interesting but i i don't know that it's necessarily from the goodness of their heart or it's really a strategic move it's just hey ultimately we're going to have to adjust our headcount simply due to the economics of the sport and it's probably better that we help guide some of these folks into our customer teams than it is to potentially lose them um, on the open market and see them go to a direct competitor yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you, you with this cost cap and everything, I think it's fa- fascinating because then it becomes almost more like a, a redistribution of um, of brain power rather than a brain drain, totally. where you're losing these uh, you know these these very qualified and very smart people rather than them getting a uh, you know pink slip in their envelope. And it's like, sorry, you know, we had to cut our numbers, but uh, like you say, you uh, you know rather than losing them to a Mercedes or to Red Bull or something like that, you're still kind of keeping them. I wouldn't say in the uh, the in in the organization, but you're definitely kind of keeping them in the Ferrari umbrella by you know sending them over to to Haas F1. So that's going to be a, a, a very interesting thing. I mean, Ferrari, I think they have a lot uh, at play here over the next uh, little while. I mean, uh, Mattia Bonato, he's he's interesting because he's a very I'm not exactly sure what the correct uh, term is. I mean, he, he's definitely quieter. He's not maybe as uh, out there and as outspoken as maybe some of his predecessors like uh, Maurizio Arrivabene. He's a very muted, kind of uh, quiet, almost introverted kind of uh, looking guy. And I, I think maybe sometimes... Uh, Maybe at least from my perspective, that maybe gives me a different uh, opinion of the way that he goes about uh, and does things. Just because, you know, I, th- I think maybe it's more to do with the fact that he's an engineer by trade. Anyway, said uh, Bonato himself, uh, he said that he feels that only a bad situation for the for the, the team at Ferrari next year will actually compromise what he's calling a very aggressive focus on the new uh, rules and the new cars that are going to come in in 2022. And I think that uh, that next year, and you said. Uh, a little bit earlier in the show that it's going to be difficult uh, for the Ferrari, you know, for, for the works team and also for the customer teams to really rebound uh, because we're going into a very, very strange year in 2021 where we kind of have like this, uh, 
you know, another this sort of prolonging of the current formula, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I don't uh, don't think that at all. But it's it's just kind of kind of keeping the seat warm because we are expecting these brand new cars coming in 2021 and all these different things. And then because of COVID and the really tight timelines to get these cars actually on the track for next year just wasn't going to happen because of the shutdown that we had. So it, it's going to be very peculiar. But you can tell that they, you know, just uh, from this quote and similar things that he said over the the weeks and months over you know the course of this season that that's where they're really you know, really focusing towards is really nailing it for for 2022 and I think they've got a lot riding on it because I wouldn't um I, I don't think, obviously, that they've uh, fallen off the the edge as as drastically and as quickly as, say, McLaren or Williams. But I think that they, uh, you know, they've dropped off enough to realize that it, it, it's a massive wake up call. Thinking, you know, to to realize, okay, well, we were what, what were they second in the constructors' champion four out of five years or whatever it was in the turbo hybrid era, and now they weren't in the top uh, top three, whatever, uh, whatever. I might have misspoken on some of those stats, top but five. So yeah. yeah, so I mean they're not even the top five now. So the prospects, I, I think, uh, for them to 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 climb back into the top, th- well, I think maybe top five is doable, but top three, I think, is going to be extremely difficult to, for them next year. And I think they found themselves in a position that once you kind of lose that edge, that you know to play catch up in 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 this modern era of Formula One is extremely difficult. So I don't want to say they've really washed their hands of twenty twenty one. I think they're going to try. And, and take the lessons that they've learned over the course of this year. And I think they will improve, but I think that 2022 is just going to become all that more crucial for them to really get back to where they want to be. If I was a gambling man, I, I and I, I don't gamble, and I often think about maybe I should, although I assume I would be pretty bad at it. <laughs> I, I, I really try to think about where I would put Ferrari next year. If, if I was looking at the over-under on kind of Bonato's prediction that they'd finish third in the championship. I don't think that's a bet that I would take. I I think for sure we're going to see some incremental improvement next year. I I wonder what the Aston Martins team is going to look like when they adjust to Sebastian Vettel being in that seat. I think McLaren's in a position where they could conceivably take a step back next year. I don't necessarily think that it's going to be a smooth transition as they migrate from a Renault power unit into a Mercedes power unit. So I think there's going to be some points available. I just think third place in the constructors championship is pretty ambitious that said though i i also don't think bonato or anyone from a leadership capacity on the ferrari team can really say anything else right you you can't go and publicly exclaim that hey we ferrari would be happy if we finished in the top five i mean realistically if they said one or two they would probably be laughed at hysterically by anyone in the media but i think they kind of have to say third um like i said i think there's going to be some there's going to be some points available to them next year that maybe weren't available this year, but I think they are right to focus on 2022. I think anything they pick up next year is is going to be gravy. Ultimately, the way the prize money and the operating income of Formula One is distributed amongst the teams, they don't necessarily have to be that competitive to cash in in a meaningful way. 
But ultimately, I think they're targeting 2022. And I think that's probably the right thing for them. And if next year is kind of a transition year, especially as you're bringing in Carlos Sainz and getting him familiar with the team and his engineers and the car and all those kind of pieces, I think whatever they can achieve next year is gravy. But I think you're absolutely right. And Bonato's ultimately right as well that 2022 has to be the year that they're in a position to put a much more competitive car on the track. And it also gives them another year to regain some of the power that they lost in that power unit after the FIA findings in 2019. You know, it's also very interesting, uh, too, just uh, listening to what uh, Mattia Bonato has been saying this week is uh, because uh, we're going into this weird, uh, you know, new world and you, you have um, this uh, development token system. So each team gets two development tokens uh, that they can use. But some of the teams that they found themselves running more closely this year, like uh, Alpha Tauri and Racing Points, they have customer, um, was it suspension and gearboxes? So since they're running those uh, customer uh, components, those actually fall in kind of a loophole and they, and uh, they, they don't need to spend any tokens on that. So they might be able to, to upgrade those uh, without uh, being penalized it. So I think that, um, th- they're, they're quite aware that they might have some uh, significant uh, challenges uh, uh, next year. But uh, to your point exactly, they're not going to come out and say anything else because they they don't want to uh, obviously admit that, uh, you know, that uh, they're they're resigned to being where they are. But I think they're very aware that uh, that it's going to be a a very, very difficult uh, year for them. And, you know, honestly, I, I think Formula One needs a strong Ferrari team. I mean, they are the world's most famous racing team. And it's not it's not a good look for them like we we talked about many times over the course of the season that at one point they were closer to Williams in terms of pace and they were to will or sorry to uh, Mercedes who were there not that long ago on well, a fairly you know even well maybe not even but they were very close to them in terms of pace so i mean the fall off that edge of the cliff for ferrari was very dramatic and yeah there's a lot riding on it for for 20, uh, 2022 anyways uh, time for another break here on the overtime media network we're going to come back in a moment and we're going to talk about ferrari so don't go away we'll be back in just a moment All right. Well, welcome back to the show and welcome to all of you uh, listening on the podcast or watching on uh, YouTube. And uh, Mark, we've been uh, talking quite a bit uh, about uh, Ferrari for the last, uh, well, good portion of the last uh, segment. And uh, yeah, so just moving uh, along from the the development uh, part of it, uh, the the one thing I think that's uh, kind of smart, just from a marketing uh, point of view, that uh, they've actually set a date and a time, basically, and they've also named the car for uh, next year, the SF21. And they're going to and unveil the car just uh, before the the preseason uh, preseason testing in uh, Barcelona, and I think it, it makes a, a good deal of sense. I, I think it uh, makes sense to to be organized. Uh, ultimately, it has no effect on whether or not this is going to be a competitive car on the track and what kind of uh, season uh, they're they're going to have. But I think that uh, just uh, from an organizational point of view, I, th- I think it's a smart thing uh, to to do. I mean, you know, it, it's quite the opposite. You know, naming a date and a time. And the name of your uh, your your 2021 car this far out compared to Williams, what was it in 2019, where they were basically running from the airport <laughs> with like parts uh, falling out of a uh, you know carry on luggage and uh, you know a, a day late and a dollar short. You know, you you also made a, and I don't mean to backtrack, but you just made a, a really great point about the importance of Ferrari to Formula One. And you know, I, I talked last week and probably the week before and probably every week before that about the fact that. Lewis Hamilton is kind of unique because he's this transcendent talent that is bigger than the sport itself. 
Ferrari as a team is that from a, a team basis. There is there is no there is no team that transcends the sport like Ferrari does, and I think it's ultimately important for the short term, media, medium term, and long term health of the sport to have a have a competitive Ferrari. And the, the, the way I see Ferrari in terms of their importance to Formula One is they're very much like a, a Man City or a Man United of the Premiership. Mm-hmm. They're very much the, the New York Yankees or the Los Angeles Dodgers or the Los Angeles Lakers of Major League Baseball or the NBA that these, these, these leagues can succeed, but the product is much, much, much more compelling when your platinum premier teams or uh, I would say organizations are are successful, and and I think it's ultimately going to be a good thing. I thought it was really interesting as well, and and I went back and looked, and I couldn't find looking at, at the last five six years, at least the turbo hybrid era, any example of a team introducing a t- car model number or a car name this far in advance, which tells me that. They've probably put a pretty significant amount of energy into developing this car already. Um, and I think obviously they, they needed to based on their results of 2020. But I think that they're probably farther ahead of most teams um, in terms of 2021 developments. Um, and I think this was probably also a bit of a marketing ploy as well that, hey, look at us. This is how far we are along that 2021 pathway. Um, the, the other comment that I would add as well is, Ferrari had made some comments recently about the fact that they've had their 2021 power unit on the dyno a couple of times. And they, they kind of alluded to this in late September. They alluded to it again in early November, and they've alluded to it against now. Uh, and they're suggesting that the power gains that they're seeing out of the 2021 power unit are pretty substantial. And not that they're at parity with 2019 yet, but significantly better than 2020. So um, I think things are looking good. And I think this is a bit of a marketing ploy to be able to come out and introduce your reveal date and your model number and have a teaser banner this far in advance is is pretty good but again ultimately it's just good for the sport yep. because formula one needs needs to have a good ferrari team both for ferrari fans and non-ferrari fans it's good to cheer for them it's good to cheer against them and i think ultimately if we if we want to see the sport continue to nurture the the hinterlands of the sport which is some of these traditional western european markets like you and i've talked about this so many times like i i don't think there's a race that that exudes energy and atmosphere more than more than Monza or potentially a Mugello or an Imola. Like that, the scenes that we see in that Charles Leclerc victory in 29, like that still gives me goosebumps. And I'm not a Charles Leclerc fan. I'm not a Formula One fan, <laughs> but that scene was epic and we need more of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And the, you know, more to your point, uh, I would say more of like a, a marketing ploy. What it does is it, it's effectively Ferrari going back and taking control of the narrative in a season when they got so much negative press, right? People were talking about uh, Ferrari for the wrong reasons. They're slow, you know, they didn't treat Sebastian Vettel right by, you know, not giving him a new phone call or a new contract and letting him go by phone and just uh, being so far down in the pack and all these different things. So what you see is them slowly getting control of the narrative and going into the season. And if the the, the new power unit uh, turns out to have these uh, substantial games uh, like, like, like you're talking about, then that uh, puts them in a, in a good uh, position for the year. So maybe they get closer back to where they were a couple of years ago, where they're fighting it more out uh, with, with Red Bull and maybe McLaren you know, next year if they can keep up their form and, and Red Bull rather than being stuck in the middle where, like they were this year. Uh, you know, with with the exception of a couple of races, I mean, they looked very good in Turkey for for some odd reason. But the the, the fact of the matter is, this year's car was too slow. It had an underpowered 
third engine in there for obvious reasons because of all the drama and what, whatever that transgression with that was uh, uncovered this time last year. And the car was just aerodynamically was uh, too, too draggy. So, I mean, they said they've learned a lot of little things over the course of 2020 that they've been able to learn from, to apply and put it into the car for, for next year. So it's interesting. And, uh, you know, it is kind of funny. It is, uh, it, you know, Ferrari is one of those teams uh, that does transcend the sport. People might not know a lot about uh, Formula One, but they know about uh, Ferrari. And I always get the feeling too that uh, Ferrari, it's, it's one of those teams that a lot of people love them. But the people that don't love Ferrari, they don't like them at all. Yeah. You know, it's, yep. it's really kind of interesting. Despite all the history and de- despite all the, the, the achievements, it's, it's one of those teams that they have like vast legions of fans, but uh, the, the, the people don't, don't call themselves Ferrari fans are very, very far off uh, f- from liking them. But just uh, before we switch over and talk a little bit, a uh, bit about uh, Mercedes. Uh, so they were actually saying this week that Charles and Carlos Sainz are free to race each other next year. What's your take on that? I think that that's interesting. I would like to see that in practice before I buy too much into that. <laughs> you, you know, I, I think if you look back at 2019 in in particular, um, there were some very high profile clashes between Vettel and Charles Leclerc and his first team or in his mm. first year with, with Ferrari. And and I, I think there was a commitment and there was promises made during the offseason leading from 2018 into 2019 at that point that ultimately these drivers will be free to race. And, and ultimately, I think what we ended up seeing was a constant clash of team strategy and team orders and driver personalities and driver ego. And it really devolved into an unfortunately complicated situation at a personnel level for Ferrari. Um, it was great storylines and it was amazing to talk about those on those on track clashes and the fact that they were disregarding team orders and things like that. Um, but ultimately it could also just speak to the fact that they probably maybe have supreme confidence in Charles Leclerc and ultimately recognize that they probably don't need to impose team orders because maybe Carlos Sainz won't be that close anyway. So they don't even need to kind of start talking about that. But I, I think it'll be, I think it'll be interesting. To be totally honest, what do you think? Yeah. I think so too. I think it's going to be a, a great leveler because I think we'll finally see what uh, what Carlos Sainz is uh, really made of. I mean, he's uh, arguably moving to a, a top team. So, I mean, whether or not they can deliver that top level performance uh, car remains to, to, to be seen. But we know what uh, who and what Charles Leclerc is. I mean, he's demonstrated that uh, to us in his first couple of years in Formula One. And, and for me, Carlos Sainz has been... He's been a bit of a question mark. I mean, we've certainly seen yes. some very good moments from him. But I mean, th- this is a guy that was at Alpha, uh, I'm sorry, I was going to say Alpha Tauri, Ta- Toro Rosso, and then Renault, and then uh, moving over to, um, uh, uh, you know, to, to McLaren. So, I mean, he's kind of had a couple of stops in his career from, you know, a, a junior team to some teams that have sort of been kind of stuck in a little bit of a, you know, a, a funny spot in, in the middle of the pack there. So I think that's a one thing that, uh, Maybe they know something we already don't in terms of, you know, uh, Leclerc v. Science, and I think that's what it's going to be really interesting to see how close these guys are in terms of. Do, uh, do you in terms think? Of pace. And and I'll ask this because it it just came to mind right now. Do you think, in a lot of ways, that this could be strategically Ferrari's Bottas? You know what? He's he's a good guy. He's a good personality. He's a good team player. Um, but ultimately, he maybe just understands his role within that team, and he's not going to create unnecessary friction with 
with with uh, Charles Leclerc because you're right. Like if you look at his career, he's he's not been bad, but he's bounced around to a bunch of teams in a relatively short amount of time. Do, do you know what I mean? And it, it was it was always yeah. a surprise, and it was a surprise to me that Ferrari pursued him in the way that they did. And I also I ultimately wonder if they're looking at him because he's simply a safe bet. He He's good enough that he can probably cash in some podiums and rake up some points, but ultimately will allow Charles Leclerc to do his thing undisturbed. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, Leclerc going to Ferrari was really the great disturber. I mean, here here we go. You get like a young guy going into Ferrari to a team that typically never gave uh, a, a shot to really young drivers like that. Yeah. And the, the, the one, you know, that, that really upset things because it was apparent right from the beginning that he was as quick as, if not quicker than Sebastian Vettel. And then that pretty, that, that answer uh, was presented pretty quickly. Where Absolutely. is he in terms of a Sebastian Vettel? But if you kind of dial it back a little bit earlier to the, the, the Vettel Raikkonen era of a uh, Ferrari was, it was ideal if you were Sebastian Vettel because you, could go out and do your thing and even though your teammate was fairly close to you in terms of pace he was just naturally that much quicker just that little bit quicker than Kimi Raikkonen that uh, Raikkonen even at his uh, you know his best just wasn't able to, to to push Sebastian Vettel. But then you had Charles Leclerc come in once Raikkonen uh, left the team and went over to Alpha. I mean, that completely got flipped on its head and, and Charles uh, came in and, and pretty much right from the beginning was, uh, you know, trying to, you know, push his way around Sebastian Vettel. I mean, you know, look at Bahrain that year that when he should have won that race yeah. that, uh, you know, they told him to stay behind uh, Seb and how long did he last behind him? Half a lap, yep. one lap, two laps. It, yep. You know, it wasn't very long and then he just pushed his way you know, you know, through, and uh, I mean, he should have won that race, and I mean, he, he was fortunate uh, that he got on the podium, but uh, that was only because of that bizarre double uh, DNF when you had literally both Renaults fail at the exact same moment, which was uh, <laughs> a very, very strange thing. But uh, yeah, it, it is. It, it's going to be an interesting uh, situation. But he, like you say, Carlos Sainz for for Charles Leclerc might just be like you say that that safe bet. You know, that that one guy that's going to come in. And the thing is, too, very much like Valtteri Bottas. I mean. Um, uh, Carlos Sainz, he isn't a very outspoken, very flamboyant kind of like say whatever uh, is on your mind. If you're unhappy, he's not going to really rock the boats. And I, I don't mean that he's kind of a, a passive yeah. kind of guy that's going to sit back and just kind of take a load of crap thrown at him. But I don't really get the feeling that, I mean, publicly, he's not that kind of guy. Uh, but uh, certainly it, it's, it's, it's a fascinating lineup that they have for next year. I mean, they've completely reversed their ethos when they, they never had like a lot of young drivers, uh, you know, gave, gave them their shot. Now they got two pretty young drivers in that team. Yeah. And Carlos is on a one-year deal as well. Uh, and, and you and I talked about this last week. I think the other thing that we need to really consider here is one, and I don't know how you're necessarily going to judge the progress and the development of Mick Schumacher simply because he's going to be driving such an uncompetitive car. But my sense is that Ferrari wouldn't be funding his development and they wouldn't be nurturing him in the way that they have if they didn't have designs on him being with that team, right? Like the the ultimate marketing campaign is to get Mick Schumacher into a Ferrari. And I think that's the end goal. 
Uh, I just don't know how long that's necessarily going to take. Um, ultimately, he was successful in Formula 2 this year. Um, he won some races. It was definitely his best open-wheel campaign yet. But I, I don't know that you leave him with Haas for two or three or four years because I don't know how much he's going to learn in that role. And I think we've talked a lot about, hey, have, have Mercedes left George Russell in the Williams team too long? And at what point do they stop developing as a driver and just start to become a little bit disengaged and, and unhappy and start shopping for other opportunities? Like for me, like if I'm Ferrari, ultimately I have designs on getting Mick Schumacher into my car sooner rather than later, unless he proves to be an unmitigated disaster in Formula One and he's clearly off the pace and he's trailing Mazepin and qualifying and practice and all those kind of things. Like if he is 80% of what Carlos signs is, my sense is that Ferrari is going to want to make that move. And we talked about this as well, that if, if I'm Carlos, I, I probably have... I probably have the understanding that my stay at Ferrari probably isn't going to be a long one. Like this is a one year, this is a two year stint because if Mick's successful in Haas, you've got to think that for the marketing opportunities alone, Ferrari has to have designs on migrating him into that seat. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's a great point that, uh, you know, Carlos being on that one year deal is uh, just to, uh, I don't want to say that he's he's like basically a seat warmer. I don't think that's a necessarily a, a very you know like <laughs> just or fair way to 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 classify it. But certainly when when you have a, a guy with uh, you know the, the the pedigree and the hopes that they they have and the potential of a Mick Schumacher, then really it, it does come down to it. Uh, you know how if if he turns out to be what they think and what he hope he's go- going to be uh, for for many different reasons, then it becomes a question of time. It's like what what is that sort of Sweet spot. Do you do you leave him in there for one year or two years, and then you you got to find like that that Goldilocks zone of uh, w- what is that right amount of time, or else it becomes uh, counterproductive, and uh, very much uh, to the point uh, that we had uh, on the, this very discussion about uh, George Russell and and Valtteri Bottas. Like, uh, at, you know, if, if you're Total Wolf and you're Mercedes. You, at some point, you got to start thinking about uh, the, the the future of that team because Bottas isn't a young driver. I mean, he's not over the hill by any means, but he's not going to be the future of that team that in two years, Lewis Hamilton says, you know what, guys, I'm hanging up my helmet and my racing gloves, and I'm going off uh, to, to pursue all these uh, you know myriad of other interests and things that, uh, that that I want to do with my life. I don't think uh, for, for a number of reasons that, uh, that, that Valtteri Bottas is the guy that you want to elevate and put into that number one seat uh, at, at for a Ferrari, and it really makes a, a, an interesting, uh, you know, topic or, or thought uh, that uh, you have uh, Charles Leclerc, who obviously is uh, a, a top level Formula One driver. This at, at such a young age and such a, an early point in his career. If uh, Mick Schumacher pans out to be what we hope he's going to develop. What is that dynamic at a Ferrari going to look like in a couple of years if you have these two guys, you know, these two young rock stars, you know, going back and forth, you know, that that could be that could be one interesting situation to, to, to take a look at. So it's going to be fun to watch and see how it uh, d- develops on, on both sides of this coin. All right. Uh, well, Mark, let's uh, take one final uh, break here. And then, uh, well, there's a, a bunch of uh, Mercedes and Red Bull things to talk about. So we'll get into that just on the other side of the break here on the Overtime Media Network. So don't go away. We'll be back on just the, the flip side here in a couple of seconds. 
All right. Well, welcome back to the show. And uh, as we start to wrap it up, there's certainly no shortage of uh, things uh, to talk about. Uh, the the big one uh, for Mercedes uh, this week, uh, team principal uh, Total Wolf will continue to serve as a uh, team principal for the next uh, three years. Uh, Lewis Hamilton uh, is really happy about that. Uh, he said that, uh, that, that Toto is what he called a, a great uh, figurehead. And... Uh, I think that uh, this was just one of those deals that really needed to, to get done. Toto says that uh, he feels like he should be a part of the team, a part of uh, Mercedes uh, forever, and uh, he's committed to, for for life, <laughs> which is uh, an interesting thing. And again, if uh, you are not Lewis Hamilton, if you're not Mercedes, and if you're not Total Wolf, if uh, basically you're everybody else in Formula One, you've got to be a little bit uh, kind of nervous about this because unless these guys completely lose the plot, Formula One is basically... You know, the, the the season is there to lose. I mean, if they're able to perpetuate the, what they've uh, been doing, I mean, Total was obviously set the, uh, the the bar there very, very high uh, off the track. Lewis has set the bar very, very high on the track. And you have these ingredients uh, there that uh, that have delivered so much uh, success. They're still to deliver potentially more success in the future. I got to think, I got to think that the momentum towards this signing really began in earnest back in the spring. And, and if you'll recall, um, it was reported that Total had invested a fairly significant amount of cash, about probably about 30 million US dollars, 45 million Canadian dollars into the Racing Point um, project. And, and I think at that point, uh, the media and social media went into this frenzy. And, and I think people began asking that question, is, is that potentially going to be his end destination. And I think what this kind of announcement does today is it really, to to your point, one, it cements his future, um, at least for the next three seasons with Mercedes. But I think it goes a long way to cementing Mercedes's commitment to the sport as well. And, and I'll be very honest, if I'm Mercedes, this is, this is a great marketing exercise for us. We're probably not earning a lot because we're doing a really good job of reinvesting all of our earnings from the F1 project back into the F1 team and into the, the operations of the power unit creation. So I, I think it's a really great marketing exercise, but I think ultimately Mercedes could take it or leave it at a board level. If you don't have Total Wolf, if you don't have Lewis Hamilton, you know what, you, you could wrap this up. You could sell off whatever your remaining shares are. But my sense is that if you have Total Wolf, I think it reinvigorates Daimler's investment, um, at least emotionally in this team. But I think, and you and I talked about this a couple of times the last couple of weeks is what's the holdup with Lewis? What's the holdup with Lewis? And you got to think that Lewis was waiting to see how this played out as well. Obviously, he's very, very close to Total. Uh, Total's been a big part of his experience with Mercedes. Uh, they've they've shared every championship celebration together since 2014. Um, Total wasn't obviously a part of the team that brought Lewis to Mercedes, but ultimately the two have clearly grown very, very close. And my suspicion is that the Hamilton contract will probably happen in pretty short order. And I think you and I talked about this as well. My sense is that it's probably going to be a one or a two or a three year deal, but there'll be driver options. Um, and I think Hamilton will probably be reinvigorated a little bit by this as well, because I think he was a little bit uncertain about Total's 
future with the team, at least as a team principal and a CEO. But I think this is a great move because I think it cements Mercedes' immediate future in the sport. And maybe it's terrible for all of the other teams, but I think, (laughs) you know what, as devastating as this team can be to the sport in terms of their dominance, um, the sport also needs the team because they're producing power units for how many different squads on, on the track right now? Like, ultimately, if they were to leave the sport, it would create a massive power vacuum and and you would have teams like McLaren and teams like Williams and teams like Aston Martin. I got to start saying Aston Martin, not Racing Point anymore. That would <laughs> be right. devoid of a power unit. Like as, as bad as they are for the sport, perception wise, in terms of their dominance, the sport also needs them because they're driving so much value to the other teams. But I thought this was awesome, awesome news. It shuts down any ongoing rumors about him going to Aston Martin. And I think it's going to hastily um, bring a, a Hamilton contract as well. Yeah, you stole the, ro- the the words right out of my mouth because uh, when, when I saw the news today that uh, Toto had re- resigned uh, for three years, my, my my immediate thought was, well, how soon uh, does the the, the, the Hamilton extension uh, get announced? Uh, you got to think that it's coming, and I, I think that uh, it will get done for a number of reasons. And I don't think that, uh, but by any means, that if uh, that Toto left and somebody else uh, came in, that they would do. Uh, not a good of a job or a professional job, but if you're Lewis at this point in your career where you've, you own so many records and you, you could walk away the sport uh, away from the sport on your own terms and go and pursue whatever you want to do in your life, that would you really want to kind of rebuild those or or build a new relationship with, with a brand new team principal at at this stage? I mean, you know, he can go off now and concentrate on what he wants to do for, for, for next year and the next couple of years, whatever the term of this contract is going to be. And, uh, you know, maybe win this eighth, ninth, maybe a 10th world championship. Who knows? Right. But I think that, uh, that maybe if Toto didn't come back, maybe he, maybe this doesn't happen. And, you know, so I, I think from just from a broader picture, I think it's a, it, it's definitely a very good thing. Did you also see the, uh, the, the, the story, the quote from uh, Lewis, uh, this week where he was saying that the, the mistakes that he had, uh, regarding the, the, the various penalties he had, like at Monza going into the pit lane when it was closed, the, um, that one in Russia for the, uh, for the, the practice starts, the, the, those aren't going to say, you know, going to, going to happen next year. And I always think that every time that, uh, that something like that or some, issue on the track uh, you know happens to mercedes just just in general doesn't matter if it's lewis or the team in uh, in general they go away and they focus and then not only do they get over these issues these gremlins whatever they might be they come back and they're even better than before you know it's just like um, a couple of years ago when they had that disastrous outing at monza and where did lewis finish he finished like seventh or eighth or something like that it was just it was a terrible weekend for them and they went back and they had those couple of weeks uh, between monaco and uh, and canada i think i said monaco did i say monza if i said monza that's you know just me. Anyways, they, they spent that two weeks between Monaco and Canada sorting out the gremlins. They get to Montreal and it was like Monaco had never happened. They were right back to where they should be, but they were even better than they were before. And whenever I hear anything like that, I always think it's kind of like a shot across the bow that if you're not Lewis Hamilton, you got to be worried about hearing something like that. Do you remember, and I'm sure you do, but I, I think this is a great reference point as well. Um, Back at Germany in 2019, which was a, it was a no, festival. the wet race. Yeah, the, the wet race. Yeah. And you, you had the entire Netflix crew there. This is the one yep. race that they were going to have access to the Mercedes team. So for those of you that, that aren't aware, and if you have seen 
um, the, the Netflix Formula One program, you'll probably have noticed that, especially in the first season, there was a pretty distinct absence of Ferrari and, and Mercedes. And, and it ultimately came down to the fact that those two teams didn't want to give up a competitive at, kind of advantage by allowing uh, mm-hmm. the, the cameras into their pits, into the garage and around the team, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, in 2019, uh, Mercedes had agreed that the Netflix crew could be a part of a single race. And it just happened, it just so happened to be Germany where they were wearing their special livery and they had a special livery painted on the car, et cetera, et cetera. But it was ultimately a catastrophic race. And again, the weather worked against them, but Bottas had a terrible spill. Hamilton had a spill. Um, he cut a corner to go into the pits. He got penalized. He wanted to tap out of the race. He still finished and got in the points. But it was funny because they moved past that weekend so quickly. It was startling. Like the fact that they were able to put that weekend behind them so quickly was was amazing and i think from that race there was there was a ton of learnings as well just in terms of you know how we prepare for a wet race and how we react to different types of situations that would come up but i think any other team that would have encountered that type of weekend under those circumstances with that amount of media pressure probably would have suffered for a few weeks um, but ultimately they they just shrugged, shrugged it off and moved on you're absolutely right. They they yeah. they learn so quickly from the few mistakes that they do make. Yeah, it really is a fascinating phenomena that uh, that you see with the Mercedes. Just uh, the, their mental fortitude and their mental strength whenever they have uh, bad racers or bad weekends, whatever it might be. Whereas it seems where it might be some, somebody else uh, that they kind of go into a bit of a funk and there's you know there's a bit of a hangover. But it's it, it's amazing that they're they're able to put these these sort of weekends behind them and then just emerge even stronger on the other side, which is always bad for the other nine teams in the paddock. I, and and I would which, give, and I would just oh, mention as well that, and just because we're talking about total Wolf, I ultimately think that's very much a leadership thing, right? I, I think oftentimes yep. when you see a, a disastrous mistake, whether it's in the pit lane or it's in the garage or it's a strategy decision, Sometimes these things bubble up to the surface and we can hear about the disputes in public, but I think oftentimes we don't, but I think sometimes these devolve into really, really significant um, disputes within the team and it can tear teams apart. And I think from a leadership perspective, I just think Total does such a great job of managing that entire operation that when something does go wrong, he's able to manage it and he's able to manage the personalities and he's able to move the team on. Whereas in a lot of teams, these things continue to simmer. If I'm a driver and an engineer makes a mistake that costs me points or there's a strategy error with the team or ultimately there's team orders that cost me a position in the race, like these are things that can start tearing and fraying at, at kind of the the social fabric of a team. But I just think Total Mm -hmm. Wolf's leadership is such that he never allows that to happen. He just never allows it to happen. And that speaks to their consistency and their dominance over the last seven years. Yeah, it, it absolutely comes down to leadership. I, I agree with you 100%. And, and that's why I think uh, the last couple of stories that, um, that I wanted to talk about uh, involving uh, not Mercedes, but uh, Red Bull are, are very interesting. Uh, the, the first one was um, uh, Hamilton's comment this week about um, uh, Sergio Perez joining Red Bull for 2021 makes him a, a much uh, stronger team. And I think that uh, very much uh, like we were saying uh, last week or the week before when the, this uh, whole Sergio Perez to Red Bull was more of a, a rumor rather than a confirmed fact that they now have that one-two punch where you have your your out-and-out number one, your your race challenger, title contender Max Verstappen, but you now have a very capable number two driver. Now, whether or not 
Vermont that will parlay itself into a legitimate uh, contender to Mercedes for for next year. That uh, kind of leads into the comments uh, that was made by Christian Horner, team principal at Red Bull, who says that they need to deliver a car that's going to be a great all-rounder for next year. Because I, I know that this year was uh, obviously a bit of an uh, anomaly due to the fact that we had this shutdown, we had the delayed start to the season. But it was interesting that even before COVID, like this before this became a thing and everything got shut down, we had lockdowns everywhere, that uh, even before the start to the season, when it should have got off the ground back in in March, uh, Christian Horner was saying that uh, Red Bull going into 2020 was the most prepared that he'd ever seen the team. And then when it got to the actual season itself, it didn't really translate into performance on the track. I mean, Mercedes was just that much better. And I mean, it's it, it's a little bit sort of speculative, uh, you know, to try and figure out where that uh, difference was. But uh, certainly what he said then didn't really translate into results on the track uh, very much this year. But uh, what, what he's saying now is very much uh, spot on because if uh, these two guys aren't able to go out and challenge uh, Mercedes and push them next year and uh, or ultimately finish higher up in the championship uh, than where they finished this year, even if it's still runner up, it's not going to come down to your driver lineup. It's going to come down to, you know, what what they got strapped onto themselves. I got to think that if I was if I was going to bet on what and you know, before I say this, let me backtrack a little bit. If you look at the constructor standings for 2020, um, Mercedes ran away with it. They scored 573 points to Red Bull, um, who scored 319 points. That's a 250, 250 point delta. It's pretty significant. But when you start, huge. when you start to unpack the circumstances around the season, you know, Mercedes had a lot of luck. They had a single retirement in the entire season. Red Bull had a ton of bad luck. They had six retirements and almost all of those were poor um, Verstappen. So Verstappen, who's your key driver and who's most likely to cash in on points, had consistent mechanical issues. And we even saw him towards the end of the season get tied up with Leclerc and he lost his opportunity to score points. And that was, they had a lot of bad luck. So if things break differently for Red Bull this year, so consider the fact that they can cut their retirements in half. So, hey, maybe we have three retirements instead of six. And maybe Mercedes has a little little less luck and they have a couple of additional retirements and then all of a sudden you stack in this second driver who by all I think by any measure is a more competitive driver than is Alex Albon suddenly you're in a position over a 23 race calendar where maybe that gap starts to shrink a little bit like I just I can't imagine a scenario next year where the gap's going to be this big one Red Bull had a lot of bad luck this year Alex Albon underperformed Mercedes had a ton of luck this year. No retirements. Well, one retirement. Like, everything kind of broke in their favor. And I just think things will probably balance out a little bit more next year, especially over the balance of a 23-race calendar. The other thing that we'll probably see, probably by early spring, is that most of the drivers will be vaccinated. I would assume that an awful lot of the drivers will be vaccinated by the time we get to Australia. In fact, it could be an FIA requirement at that point. Um, And ultimately, I don't think we're going to see drivers like Sergio Perez miss two races. So I would expect that Mercedes is still going to win next year, but I would expect that gap to shrink considerably. And you, you and I talked about this as well. I think Honda, knowing that it's their last year in the sport, is going to go all in and they're going to throw the kitchen sink at that team in terms of financial resources because they want to go out with a bang as well. But I, I would suggest yeah. that 250 point deficit is going to shrink considerably. What do you think? Yeah, it, it, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And uh, 
the whole Sergio Perez thing to uh, to to Red Bull, it, it's kind of a feel good story because uh, yeah. I, I was feeling you know really bad for the guy that uh, you know pro sports and you know the Shark Tank that it can be, notwithstanding that it, it just uh, it just didn't feel right that when the musical chair stopped that he was the one guy that was uh, w- w- without a, a a seat. So I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, I mean he's 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 worked out really well for him, and I really hope uh, that uh, that they get a good and competitive uh, car for him uh, next year and for Max Verstappen happen as well because they've been in this funny kind of um, sort of uh, situation as well is that the, they've obviously closed the gap and surpassed uh, you know the, the, the gap uh, with, with Ferrari they're now trying to close that gap to, to Mercedes which is no easy feat so that is one of the fascinating things to, to, to look for next year but uh, certainly like it's true I was just thinking that when you were saying that if uh, they have less uh, you know reliability issues and Mercedes has more I was kind of thinking yeah well it doesn't really happen all that much uh, for for Mercedes, but you do when they do it, it's sort of in races you wouldn't expect. Like we saw in Austria that one year, yeah. Where in 2016, when the big end went on Lewis's car, which ultimately basically Malaysia, cost yeah. him the championship that there. Yeah, sorry, in Malaysia, and then also uh, when you think about it, this year the two races that you didn't really expect that they have trouble with tires was Silverstone. You know, yeah. I mean, so true. I know that it's you know especially that track. I know that uh, you know they're, they're racing at Silverstone this summer, so I know you know you get the elevated track temperatures and stuff like that. So I mean they are not immune to it. So it would be it it really it, it's sort of a really tantalizing prospect that if a Red Bull can uh, you know improve the car, Honda gives them an even better power unit for for, for next year. That uh, it really makes me salivate to to see you know the the, the prospect of these teams fighting a, lo- a lot more closely together. And who knows? We'll have to sit patiently. I mean we're now what. 90 something days until the first uh, race. <laughs> so, it's, I mean, it's still a ways off. It's but. also probably not too early to start planning the season preview show. And it's funny because I, I wasn't actually excited about Red Bull until we started talking about it. And like, this could be a really, in, like, a really compelling storyline for 2021. And now I'm starting to chomp at the bit to get our season preview done because, you know, to your point, like, the season's <laughs> going to come so fast, right? Um, but yeah, it should be, it should be really, really good. And I, I can't wait. I can't wait till we get to that, that season preview show and I get to hear who your top three are. Cause I, I, I have an idea of who my top three is going to be. Um, but I can't wait to hear what, uh, what yours is going to be. Well, you know, even more to that point, it's going to be interesting to see when we get to uh, to preseason testing. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of you know they're they're shaking down the cars and everything like that. But you know, once they get to the end of the testing sessions and you know they're they're they've got things figured out and they're as close to race trim as, as possible. That uh, when we see some of these final times, when the, to see how they sort of match up. I mean, sometimes you get like these false indicators, like we saw with the Ferrari that one year. Oh, they're a second and a half faster than Mercedes. And then, of course, you get to uh, to Australia, and it just didn't you know, yeah, turn out yeah. to, to be more than a flash in the pan in in, in in winter testing. So I've got a couple of things. I'm not going to divulge it now because you know we have to keep these things you of know course. to talk about uh, you know <laughs> at the proper time. But there are so many great things to uh, to to watch over the winter and see how they develop, and and, and especially going into to 2021. And like we were saying earlier in the show, despite the fact that it is going to be this sort of in-between season there's so many great things that uh, that uh, to, to keep a lookout for i mean 
Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's a whole list. We, we could probably cut this show off and start a new one right here. But uh, perhaps, you know, in the spirit of the season, perhaps we should uh, be, be giving <laughs> and rather than, uh, <laughs> well, I guess we're taking if we're, we're, we're cutting it off at this point. But maybe we're giving the gift of less of us <laughs> until oh, next God. week. Yeah. And so on that note, uh, well, thank you all uh, very much uh, for downloading, watching, listening uh, to the show on uh, behalf of myself and from uh, from Mark, you know, happy, uh, you know, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Well, we'll be back next year before uh, New Year's. Enjoy the holidays. Stay safe. And um, I hope there's a lot of Formula One themed presents under the Christmas trees on Christmas morning. Anyways, if you want to get in touch, as always, do so on Twitter at ScuderiaF1Pod, at uh, the email at uh, ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com. And that's it. That's a wrap. Merry Christmas from both of us. Bye for now. And we'll talk to you next week.